understand what it's like to have a spiritual life that kind of feels like really up and down. How many of you understand what that feels like? We're, we're like, I don't know if you can relate to that. We're one week, like at least for me, one week I feel like I'm a super Christian. Like I am up there and the next week I'm like, dude, do I, do I even believe this? Where I just have like this, this, this so up and down where I almost kind of sometimes I feel like maybe I'm spiritually bipolar. We're like, man, I'm just on fire for the Lord, and then I'm, I'm not. I mean, how many of you can relate to this idea? How many of you look, and it seems like maybe there are some sins in your life, maybe some things in your life that no matter how hard you try to get rid of, it's just like, I can't. It's always there. It comes back. Maybe, maybe for you, uh, maybe it's like, you know, why, why do I have so, much, so little joy in my life? Where it seems like everybody else around me, like they're just following the Lord and everything is wonderful and happy. But for me, it's just, it's a struggle. I don't have that, that joy. I just can't seem to do it. You know, it seems like everybody else around us, we go to church and it's like, well, everybody, man, they've got their act together. But me, I'm like, man, I'm just dragging myself to get myself at church that week of, of barely getting there. And so sometimes as I go through my spiritual life and I have these ups and downs and I'm looking at other people who always seem to have it together, I, I begin to wonder, like, like, am I doing something wrong here? Like, am I, am I not doing this Christian thing right? Like, why is my uh, spiritual life like a yo-yo? Like, up and down, up and down. And let me, by the way, this is a good time to insert this and say this. Uh, for those of you that know somebody who would say, well, that's not my life. I am always on fire for God. I never have a struggle. Listen, those people, those people are liars, okay? They are fakes. Uh, one of the th discoveries I've made as a pastor is that every one of us, once you get to know us, every one of us is a little bit screwed up. And I would say, first and foremost, that includes me. Like every one of us, we have these areas of, of our faith that become a struggle. And that just becomes the reality of our life is, is this up and down, yo-yo faith. With, with that, today we're going to introduce uh, a new series we're going to be studying the next couple of months. We're going to look at the, the book of Judges. And when we think about the book of Judges, we see exactly that. We see uh, people with an up and down faith. In fact, it's the story of the entire book. And so today we're going to look at the first couple of chapters that really serve as an introduction to what the book of Judges is all about. And we're going to see just how up and down their life is. And we're going to look and see some things that God would be able to, to teach us on how do we get to the point with our faith that we become a little bit more consistent. A little bit more just leaned in where we don't have as much of that up and down, back and forth uh, kind of faith. A little bit of a background on the book of Judges. Um, it is the seventh book of your Bible, so if you open from the very beginning, you're going to find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, and after Joshua comes Judges in the Old Testament. Uh, the author of this book is never identified. Uh, some tradition says that it was the prophet Samuel who wrote this book, but really there's no way to identify that. Some other experts say it was written maybe around the time of King David, so we don't know exactly who uh, wrote this book. The context for the book of Judges, again, this is where it's good for us to understand the context of it. When we look at the narrative of the Bible, we look in the book of Exodus, and we know the story of Moses. We all like the story of Moses. Moses leads God's people out of Israel. He goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Like, we've watched the movie. We know that story. And so Moses leads Israel out of Egypt, and they're going, and God's promised them this special land, this promised land. 
And so they're on their way to the promised land. And then in the book of Numbers, Israel, God's people, they begin to doubt God. They begin to, to, to bicker amongst themselves and kind of have this doubt towards God. And so God says, okay, because you're doubting me, I'm going to make you wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so 40 years, imagine, uh, I love camping. My wife has a limit of two or three nights because then you got to get home and get showered up and cleaned up, right? Can you imagine 40 years of camping? That's what they did. That's, that, that's crazy. 40 years, they're, they're wandering, uh, waiting to get into the promised land. Finally, after that 40 years, after that generation of doubters had, had, had moved on, had passed away, uh, the people of God are ready to enter into the promised land. And God had given them very specific instructions. When they're getting ready to enter the promised land, this is what God said. Numbers 33. God said, drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. God said, I'm going to give you this land, but you need to drive everybody out because they have all these stone images and all these idols. And God said, when you take this land, I want you to get rid of all of those. I don't want any of those false gods to remain. Now, when we hear about this idea of the conquest, we hear about God leading Israel into the promised land and supposed to drive out all the inhabitants. It almost kind of sounds like, is that just a, a religious crusade? It kind of sounds like, how could God justify calling his people to go into this land and kill everybody? Like, that sounds like a holocaust. Like, that hardly sounds like what God would instruct God, his people to do. And this is where we have to have a little bit of context. A little bit of context in Deuteronomy 18, Numbers 18, the specific reasoning for this. God is not just saying, I want you to go in, and I, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a racial thing. God's not trying to say, hey, we don't like that race of people. I want you to kill them. It's not an imperialistic thing. God's not saying, I want you to go in and take all their stuff so you become rich. The specific reason why God was sending them in here, uh, according to God's word, is this was God's judgment on these people. That these people were, were excessively wicked. They continually rejected God. They profaned the name of God. And God said, listen, listen, there's this righteous judgment that comes to that. That when we, when we profane God, when we rebel against God, there's this righteous God judgment that God brings on people. And this is God saying, hey, these people have rebelled against me long enough. And so I'm going to bring my righteous judgment on them. And he happens to use the nation of Israel. But, but God's intent is not to create this racial thing or not to create this imperialistic thing. God's intent is to uh, bring just, justice to these people who have profaned the name of God. And so the instruction is, hey, Israel, I want you to go in. You're going to take possession of the land, and I want you to get rid of all of these false gods. I want you to get rid of all the idols. I want nothing left. I want you to be able to enter this land, and the only person you're going to be able to worship is me. That was God's intent. So we get through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, who's a leader of God's people, he dies. And so then we open to the book of Joshua. Joshua, we're going to hear about the story of Joshua. Joshua becomes the leader of God's people, and he leads God's people into the promised land. And Joshua is just one of these beautiful books because you see the people of God during the book of Joshua, they're very faithful to God. They're just obedient. This is what God has for us, and we're going to follow God. And you see this throughout the book of Joshua where there's this, this faithfulness. There's this good relationship between God and the people because they're obeying him. And so God begins to bless them. And God gives them these incredible victories where they're entering the promised land. Remember the story of, of, of Jericho where God says, hey, I want you to go in to, 
Jericho, and you're going to take possession of Jericho. And the people are like, well, how are we going to do that? Like, are we going to bring some, uh, uh, you know, F-18s, and they're going to kind of get the land ready for us? And God said, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city every day for seven days. The people are like, what? You want us to be in a marching band? How, what is this going to do? But they're obedient. They're obedient. They march around the, 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 the walls for seven days. On the seventh day, the walls came tumbling down, and God gives them the victory. And so there's this, there's this idea that when God's people are faithful to him, that God blesses them, and God gives them these amazing victories and these amazing successes. And so here in the book of Joshua, you see, man, all eyes are on God, and it's wonderful. And then Joshua dies. Then Joshua dies, and that's where we pick up in the book of Judges. There's still some more work to do. There's still some more land for them to take possession of, and that is where Judges picks up. Now, the theme for this book, again, I always think it's good for you to have a little bit of background on the books of the Bible that we're going to study. The theme for the book of Judges is relevant to our culture today. Judges chapter 17, verse 6, as well as verse 21, verse 25, this is what it says. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And here, here's the part that becomes part of the theme where it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That there was a day and age when, when, when people, they looked and they just decided, hey, even though God says this, we're just going to do what we think is right. I mean, does that sound like our day and age and our mantra in our society? I mean, we're told in our culture, we're told, hey, if it feels good, it must be right. I mean, we're told, as long as it makes you happy, that's all that matters. We're told, well, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you're sincere. You know, as long as, as, long as you're not hurting anybody, well, you can just do whatever you want to do. Do whatever's right in your own eyes. And listen, it's not just in the world. It also happens to be in the church, too. Israel, this is God's people. The nation of Israel, these were God's people. And they know who God is. They know that God is real. And they have, have parts of their lives that they have dedicated to God. But we're going to see that there's also parts of their lives that they're saying, hey, I know that God says this, but in my own eyes, in my wisdom, I think this is the right thing to do. And so you see this juxtaposition, you see this balance between people who are, yes, I know God, I believe in God, and there's a part of me that's following him, but there's another part of me that says, you know what, I'm wise, I have my own plans, I have my own thoughts, and I'm going to do my own thing. These are not people who've completely rejected God. And so the theme, the theme that we're going to see through the book of, Ju of Judges is you're going to see the, the disaster of what happens when we are not fully surrendered to God. We're going to see the disaster that creates when we are, are halfway following God and, and halfway following our own thoughts and ideas and plans. And the book of Judges is going to show us again and again and again and again our need to allow God to be over all areas of our life. We're going to see again and again and again our need to, to surrender the things that we see right in our own eyes, to surrender our will, our thoughts, our plans, our everything to him. That if we want to figure out how to get over this yo-yo faith, it really comes from this idea of us surrendering all that we are in all areas of our life over to him. Because that's where his blessing comes from. That's where his, his, his prosperity and all those things come from. And it was true for the Israelites back then, and it's true for us today. 
that even as Christians, even though we go to church, even as Christians, even though we read our Bible, even though we as Christians, as we, we mark religious on our social media pages and do whatever we do, listen, if we are not fully surrendered to God, if we hold on to areas of our life that we have these small areas of unbelief, these small areas of, of unsurrender to God, man, it leads us to having huge areas of disaster in our life. That even these little areas that we hold on to and say, God, I know you say this, but I want to do this. Even these little areas, it leads to huge areas of disaster. In fact, I would say half-hearted commitment is really not true commitment at all. So this idea uh, that you've got these people that are kind of following God, but also kind of following what seems right in their own eyes, that's going to be this theme throughout this entire book again and again and again. And here in chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see how that theme begins to take shape. So uh, here we go, jumping right in. Again, as we look at Joshua chapter 1, we start with chapter 1, you've got to read it in light of Joshua's faithfulness. And so here you've got in Joshua, again, the book of Joshua is God's people are so faithful to him. They're just obedient to what God has for them. And God blesses and gives them all sorts of victories. And in chapter 1, we're going to see that, that here God's people and judges, well, they're, they're kind of following God, but they're kind of not. They're, they're, they're kind of faithful, yet they're kind of flawed. So here we go. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It says that people, they ask God, hey, we're going to go take possessions of the land. God, who should go first? And God answers and says, Judah, Judah, the tribe of Judah. The people of Judah, you should go first, and you should take possession of the land that you have. And here's what happens. God says, Judah goes first, and in verse 3, what happens? Judah's like, hey, I got a good idea. I'm going to ask my brother Simeon. I'm going to ask some more of God's people, hey, why don't you guys join, join hands with us, and we'll, we will go and fight together. Come with us. Now, again, in our own eyes, and that sounds like a wise decision, right? Like, hey, I could go in on my own and fight the bad guys, or I could get a bigger team and go fight the bad guys. In our own eyes, it makes sense. But compared to what God asked them to do, God said, Judah, you go first. Judah, you go alone. God didn't say, hey, Judah and, and Simeon, Judah and someone else. God said, you go alone. So in the very beginning, in the very beginning, we see this little bit of disobedience. Where, 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 I mean, it's not a big deal. It's not a big thing. But there's this little bit where I'm following God, I'm doing what God wants me to do, but I'm also going to do a little bit of what I want to do. And so from the very beginning, you see this, uh, this, this dual personality that's playing out. Nevertheless, the Lord gives them victory. And they're able to go in and, and they, capture, they capture this guy by the name of Adonai, Adonai Be Be Bezek, which really means the, the Lord or the ruler of the people of Bezek. And, and in this really kind of this is what you're going to find in the book of Judges. It's pretty, there's some graphic stuff that happens. And so they capture this guy, and they chop off his, his fingers and his toes. We're like, man, this sounds terrible. Why would, why would God permit this? Well, look at the response. Look at what the king, look at what the ruler of Bezek says. He says in verse 7, he says, 70 kings, 70 other kings I cut off their thumbs and their big toes. And I use them as scraps underneath my table. And here's what he says. This is cool. He says, as I have done, God has also repaid me. 
And so we look at this and we're like, man, it doesn't make sense. Why would God send God's people to, to destroy the, the people, of the, these people, the Canaanites? And the ruler, one of the rulers of the Canaanites says, you know why God's doing this? God's repaying me for what I've done. He recognized, hey, I've been a sinful man. I have rebelled against God. He recognized, this isn't just, uh, this isn't just a racial thing. This isn't imperialistic. He recognized, man, God is judging me for the way I've treated other people. That I've done to other people the same exact thing, and now God is doing it to me as justice. And so he doesn't view it as, oh, there's this uh, incredible holocaust happening, this bad thing happening. He recognized this is the judgment of God because of the way that I have lived. So you go through verses 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you see just a number of successes for God's people. That they go in... Uh, they're obedient to what God has asked them to do. They're driving out the inhabitants of the land. They're destroying the altars. They're, they're doing what God asked them to do. And then you look at verse 19. We're just going to run through these together, so uh, follow along uh, with me. I have some of these verses behind me on the screen. Verse 19 is important. It says that the people, that they took possession of the hill country. But, but listen to this. He says, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had iron chariots. Here we've had a number of victories, a number of sets of obedience, and then they get to these bad guys, and they've got iron chariots. That's like tanks of the day, okay? And so here you've got foot soldiers. They're getting ready to go into battle, and then they see these tanks in front of them, and they're like, nope, we can't do this. Now this is common sense, right? Like we almost have a little bit of sympathy for them. I mean, we could put ourselves in that shoes. Okay, God, you've asked me to go in, and I've got my little sword, uh, and I'm going to go and conquer these people. Then I show up, and they've got tanks. There's no way that we can win that. And so in Israel, according to their own eyes, they're almost justified. Well, of course we couldn't drive them out because they're stronger than we are. They've got better weapons than we do. Well, of course, of course, God, of course we can't drive them out because they're so strong. But what happens is this becomes a pattern throughout the rest of the entire chapter. This becomes, a pa this becomes a pattern where God's people are looking and saying, man, this looks really hard. Like those enemies, they look really difficult. They look strong. They've got muscles that I didn't even know you could have muscles in those places. They're like, we, we can't drive them out. We're unable to. So look at this, verse, verse 21. It says, the people of Benjamin they, they did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, it says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages. And how come they didn't drive them out? Because at the end of that verse, it says, for they persisted in dwelling in that land. How come they couldn't drive out the people? Well, God's people asked them nicely, hey, would you leave? Because we really want to take possession of this land. They're like, well, the people were, they cussed us out. They punched us in the face. They were really mean. They wouldn't leave. Like, we tried, God. We asked him very nicely. We even said, pretty please, with a cherry on top. But the Canaanites didn't leave. They, they, they stayed there. They were really stubborn. And so we kind of figured, well, we just told those Canaanites, those bad people, we just said, well, if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. It works out good, right? Verse 28 says that when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites into forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now that, honestly, that kind of sounds like a win-win, right? Again, if we're looking according to our own eyes, like, like if we force them out, 
If we force him to leave the area, man, we get nothing out of we get nothing in return for that. But in our own eyes, if we can just be a little bit smart, man, we can allow these people to stay in the land, and we'll just use them as forced labor. We'll use them as slaves. So we, I mean, it's a win-win, right? We're going to be in charge, and we get to keep them around, and they get to do the, the, the menial jobs that we don't want to do. Man, almost to the point you can see Israel like, man, God, you should be so proud of us. You are so lucky that we're doing this for you. Look what we did. We made a win-win situation. We didn't drive them out. We, made, we gave you even something better, God. Now they're going to stay, and they're going to work for us. Is that what God asked them to do? No. Again, let's just, verse 29, follow along on these. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Do you kind of see the pattern? Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And even worse, verse 34, it says the Amorites, they pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. So here's, here's God's people, the people of Dan, the tribe of Dan. They're going in to take possession of the land, but the people in the land, they pushed them back. They're like, no, you're not even going to come in. We're not even going to let you into the land. Now, we read that. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that they had better weapons. It doesn't say that they were stronger. It doesn't say that they were superior in knowledge or courage. It simply means they just wanted it a little bit more. They didn't even allow God's, so God's, it's not even that God's people can dwell with them. They didn't even allow God's people into the place, in the, into the land in the first place. Again, you just see this, this pattern again and again. They did not drive the inhabitants out. Now, honestly, as you kind of read through this chapter, do you kind of feel a little bit of sympathy? Kind of feel a little bit of sympathy with it, the way it's written? Well, because... You know, the people, they had iron chariots. And so you almost kind of feel a little bit of sympathy towards God's people. Well, of course they couldn't go fight against iron chariots. Well, of course, the people, they tried. They tried, they tried their hardest. But, you know, those Canaanites, those bad people, they're, they're strong and, and they're stubborn. And, you know, they just, they couldn't get victory over them. And so God's people are saying, well, you know, we did all right. We took some of the land. What, we, we did all right. We, we increased what we didn't have before. So you almost kind of picture Israelites being like, God, we tried. We tried our best. And, you know, we took the test and we got maybe 60%. That's like a D, right? Ds get degrees. Isn't that how it works? So then we get to chapter 2. Chapter 2, the text that Dana read for us, this is God's assessment of how the Israelites did. It says in verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal, uh, from Gilgal to Bosham, and he said, he told them, he said, listen, I brought you from Egypt into the land that I swore to the, your fathers. This is what I've done. And then, and, then, and then here's a promise that God made. God said, I will not break my covenant with you. I will be faithful to you. You're my people. I'll be faithful to you. And then here's, here's God's instruction. I'll be faithful to you. Verse 2 do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You are to break down their altars. You're to drive them out of the land. This is God's instruction. Here's what you were told to do, and here's God's assessment of what you actually did. Verse 2, you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. God saying, man, your instructions were so simple. 
It, it was supposed to be so simple. You obey my voice. You obey my command. And if you do that like Joshua, if you are obedient to me and faithful to me, man, I'm going to give you success. Like if you, if you obey my voice and you surrender and do what I ask you to do, God's saying, I'll bless you. I'll, I'll take care of you. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. God says, you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? He says, you've only partly obeyed me. And you have all sorts of reasons as to why you didn't fully obey me. But listen, partial obedience is still disobedience. Parents, how many of you know that? Your kids partly obey you? Listen, that's still disobedience. So, as a result of this partial obedience, God says in verse 3, now I will not drive them out from before you. These people will become thorns in your sides. Their gods will be a snare to you. Listen, because you weren't faithful to me, God says there's a consequence for you. That these people are going to remain among you and their gods are going to be snares to you. They're going to become thorns in your side. Let me try and paint a picture for what it looks like for uh, these people becoming thorns in their side. Uh, this past spring, my wife and I were doing some landscaping at our house. We're planting some trees and kind of get some things in place. We built a couple of raised uh, garden boxes. We're going to plant a little garden. Problem is you've got to get dirt to fill those up. And, and we, the way we excavated our house, we had to get some extra dirt. So we had some dirt that was donated to us. We get these big piles of dirt brought out. We got these big piles of dirt. We're like, this is great. Look at all this dirt. And we're getting ready to use this dirt to put into the boxes and everything else. And we had a friend come over. And our friend's like, hey... Uh, I would not recommend using that dirt. We're like, it's free dirt. Like, nothing could be better than free dirt. Like, yeah, but look in that dirt because there's these uh, this cheat grass roots. There's long roots of, of dead grass. We're like, hey, it's dead. Who cares? She's like, no, because if you use this dirt, what's going to happen is those roots will grow cheat grass. And when cheat grass grows, those roots begin to choke, choke out anything they come around. They begin to, to, to destroy whatever else you're trying to grow. And we're like, well, that doesn't sound very good. So when we're getting ready to use the dirt, we're trying to be careful with where we use that dirt. And if we use that dirt, I'm going to try and get all the roots out. But guess what happened? I didn't get rid of all the roots. And so there are places in my yard that, that uh, in fact, there's one, there's this clematis that we planted, this climbing little thing that we did. And uh, again, I, I tried to get some of the roots out, but I didn't get all of them. And so I've got this dirt around this clematis growing thing. And that cheatgrass has choked out the clematis. It's barely alive. It may be dead now, but it was barely alive. Maybe because I also didn't get enough water. But regardless, like that cheatgrass grew all around it. And the cheatgrass grew, like, and it was terrible. It just spread all over the place. It was invasive. It's the stupidest stuff ever. Man, I, I almost feel like Satan could have showed up not as a cat or a serpent, but as cheatgrass. It's evil. And that's the story of Judges. That is a story where the Canaanites, because they did not drive them out, because they allowed their, their false gods to remain in the land, that it becomes a constant temptation for God's people. That it begins to choke out their faithfulness to God. It begins to pull their eyes off of God and onto lesser things, onto these idols. You know what idols do? Idols, they, 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 they promise us freedom and happiness. 
And we have all these things that we idolize. We idolize money. Well, if I could just get enough money, man, then I'd be free and happy. Well, if I could just get the right relationship, then everything would be wonderful. If I could just get the right job, if I could just get the right whatever happens to me, these are the idols. They promise us freedom. They promise us happiness. And you know what happens? They leave us empty every single time. They never fully satisfy. Those idols are nothing more than a taste of the blessing God gives when we fully obey. So because they fail to drive these things out, you have these areas let me just say, there's, maybe there's areas of unbelief, areas of disobedience that they've allowed to remain in their heart that will constantly pull their eyes off of God, pull their eyes onto lesser things, and, and take them away from where true peace and happiness and, and fullness happens to be. And Dana read for us again, ver, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, that this becomes the cycle of the book of Judges. That the author says this is what's going to happen again and again and again. That because the people of God were not 100% fully surrendered and fully dedicated to God, because they only half-heartedly followed him, but they also did what was right in their own eyes, that there's a cycle that's going to happen again and again and again. And here's a cycle. Verse 11, it says that the people do evil in the sight of God. They turn their eyes off of God, and they turn their eyes to idols that promise so much but offer so little. They turn away from God. The next step, verse 14, is that God hands them over. God says, hey, you know what? You're going to sell out on me. You're going you're to pursue false gods. You're going to choose other things over me. God says, go for it. I'm going to let you have it. Go have your way. God doesn't force himself on us. We make choices all the time. And God says, hey, you want to choose to go follow those other things? Go for it. God loves him. There's no blessing or joy or peace when we follow those things. So God says, go ahead and choose whatever you want to follow. I'm not going to stop you. The people, the cycle becomes they suffer. God lets them over and they begin to suffer. It becomes difficult and a struggle. So after a season of suffering... Verse 18, the people cry out to God. God, God, we're in trouble. Isn't this what our life looks like, so many of us? Where we take our eyes off of God, we're going to pursue all these other things, we're going to live our life the way we want, and then we get in a mess, and we're like, man, this stinks. God, would you help me? This is what Israel's doing. They take their eyes off God, they pursue other things, they get to the point that they're struggling, and they're, they're suffering. They're like, God, God, would you rescue us? So God does. God rescues them. He sends a judge. He sends a judge to deliver them out of their misery. He sends a leader who's going to lead them back to God, lead them out of the trouble that they're in, to get them to a, a spot that they can remain faithful to God again and, and keep their eyes on him for a little while. Because then the last part of the cycle, is soon enough, they, verse 17 actually says that they prostitute themselves back to the idols. That they take their eyes off of God and they go back to those idols that promise freedom, promise happiness. Take their eyes off God, they stop listening to the judge, they stop hearing what the judge has for them, and it leads them right back into the cycle. Where they reject God, they find themselves suffering once again. And this is the cycle of the entire book. 
This is what we're going to study in the next weeks is this same repeat cycle. A people, when they take their eyes off God, God's going to say, go for it. He's going to let us struggle and suffer and live in, 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 in terrible conditions and wait to see, are we going to turn back to him? Are we going to cry out to him? Are we going to follow him? And when we do, he'll, he'll, he'll deliver us from it. The question is, are we going to remain faithful at that point? Or are we going to do what so many of us do and what Israel does? As soon as God rescues us, all right, now I'm good again. I'm going to do it on my own. That's the cycle for the book of Judges. The question for us this morning is, if that's what Judges, what does this mean for you and I today? How does, how does this impact our life? How does it impact our faith that always feels like a yo-yo? Where it seems like on again, off again. How do we apply this to our life? Here's how we do apply it. Again, I, I said this earlier, and I think this is, a me, this is a, the, the theme of the message for today. Is that the small areas of unbelief and unsurrender in our life, they lead to huge areas of disaster. That is what we can hear today is that these little small areas that we are unwilling to, to, to surrender to God or little areas that we're saying, hey, God, I know I should believe this, but I'm going to believe this instead, that they will lead us to huge areas of disaster. Listen, God's instruction to these people, it was so simple. Clear out the whole land so you don't have these temptations in front of you. And again, it's not that these people completely rejected God. Israel did not completely reject God. They, they believed in him, they, they, they followed some of his instructions, but they had not wholly surrendered. They had not fully accepted or, or trusted. And this is where partial obedience is going to lean towards non-obedience. That when we partially obey, that we have this other, other portion that we're not obeying, that other portion always is going to look greater and greater and greater. In fact, look, look, Look at, what, look at what happened here. Look at this context. Verse, chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. It says, we could not drive them out. We could not. We tried. We could not. Hear that word, could not. And then look at the contrast of what God says in chapter 2, verse 2. Israel said, we could not. And God said, you have not obeyed. Israel says, we can't, and God says, no, it's not a matter of whether or not you can't, it's a matter of you won't. I mean, our response is, we justify, well, I can't, and God says, no, it's not a matter of you can't, it's a matter of you won't. Listen, this is something that's worth you and I asking ourselves this question, and being honest with ourselves. Where is it in your life? Where is it in your life that you're saying, God, I can't? God, I can't be obedient here. God, I can't follow you with this. God, I can't surrender this area of my life. God, God, I can't do that. Where is it that you're saying I can't? Because I would say chances are God's saying it's not a matter of you can't. It's a matter of you won't. God's response is not that you can't. It's that we won't. That we won't fully surrender. We won't fully follow. We won't fully trust. We won't fully obey. Now we look and we, we, we can justify it. Well, well, God, I tried. Listen, 1 Corinthians 10 says God is faithful, that he won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, that when God puts something in our path, he always provides a way out. He always provides a way for us to be obedient to what he's asking us. 
So let me ask you this. Where is it in your life that you're saying, God, I can't? I can't trust. I can't follow. I can't obey. Listen, this plays out with our integrity, right? Plays out, plays out when we're facing, uh, having to tell someone the difficult truth, right? You know, well, 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 you know, I can't tell him the truth because if I tell him the truth, it'll, des- it'll destroy him or it'll destroy me. Like, I can't tell him the truth, right? And oftentimes we use this excuse of I can't as a way to hide our cowardice or we hide our pride. Well, when I say I can't, what I really mean is if I tell the truth, then he won't like me anymore. And that's just, too, something I'm not willing to bear. I, I can't tell the truth because if, if I'm honest with my struggle, I might be humiliated. And I can't risk that. So I will say I can't, but what I mean is I won't. I would rather disobey than do what God would ask me to do. It plays out in our forgiveness. It plays out with somebody who has wronged us, where we say, well, I can't forgive that person. They've done this thing to me, and it is so deep and personal and wrong. I can't forgive them. Even though God's word is clear that we are to forgive, God makes it possible for us to forgive. So when we say we can't, really what we mean is I won't. I want to hold on to my bitterness. I want to hold on to my anger. I want to hold on to my right to get even. And I'll just hide it under the excuse of, well, I can't forgive them. It's a matter of I can't. It's a matter of I won't. This is where it gets really personal. Plays out with our generosity. You know, God, I, I, I can't give to what you've asked me to give. Like, God, I, I'm, I'm barely able to survive on my own, let alone be generous. Question is, do you trust God enough to provide? Temptation. Man, plays out with our temptation. We have all these things. Uh, you know, God, I, I, I just can't resist this temptation. I can't resist looking at those images on the internet and watching those videos. I can't resist that cigarette. I can't resist whatever it is. Right? Again, I want to be a little bit cautious here because I want to recognize that sin, it does have this addictive power. And it may be true that maybe you can't overcome that temptation in your own strength and by your own willpower. But you know what God would say? God would say, you can get help. You can admit you have a problem. You can humble yourself. You can become accountable to other people. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us, it tells us that God always gives us a way out. So we say, God, I can't. And what God says is, no, you won't. You won't do what's necessary to follow me. Where is it in your life that you're saying, God, I can't? God, I can't do what you're asking me to do. Because really it becomes, why won't you? The question becomes, well, how do I, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with my I won'ts? If we've got I won'ts in our life, this is hard, God, I won't. Look at what, look what Judges chapter 2 verse 1 says. And the angel said, on behalf of God, I brought you 
up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. This is what God is saying to his people. He's saying, remember what I've done for you. Remember that I brought you out of Egypt. Remember, I made this promise that I will be faithful to you. Listen, our failure to obey is often symbolizing our failure to remember what God has done for us and who God is. That when we fail to obey, it's because we're not reminding ourselves, look what all that God has done for us in the past. Look how faithful he has been to us. I mean, here in this story, God's saying, hey, look what I did for you in Israel, or in Egypt. Like, 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 I brought you out of Pharaoh's possession. I took you to the Red Sea. I parted the Red Sea. I parted the Red Sea. Surely, surely, if God can lead you across the Red Sea on dry land, surely God can give you victory over some iron chariots. I mean, seriously, this is where you and I, like, like, Sure, God, we trust you with our salvation. God, we trust you for our salvation, but God, I'm not really sure I can trust you with the day-to-day concerns of my life. Right? I mean, sure, sure, God, you paid for my sin. I mean, sure, God, you're preparing a place for me up in heaven. Sure, God, sure, God, I know that you are preparing this place for me, but God, I'm not sure I can trust you with my budget. God, I'm not sure I can trust you with my emotional needs. God, I'm not sure I can trust you with my grief. You want to know how we grow in our faithfulness? Is we remember who he is. We remember what he's done for us. Surely if he gave his son to die on the cross in my place, then surely he has a care and concern about the details of my life. If he went to that depth to prove his love for me, surely, surely he cares about what I'm going through and has a plan and a purpose and a way that is better than I can imagine. I want to close with just one more thought from this text. And maybe it's a little bit of attention. Maybe it's something that maybe as you look at faith and and the church and the Bible, maybe it's one of those things that you have wrestled with yourself. Look. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. God says, listen, here's, here's my promise. My promise is I will never break my covenant to you. God says, I'm always going to be faithful to you. I'm always going to take care of you. That God is gracious and loving. But look at what he says in verse 15. He says, whenever God's people went out, the Lord was against them. And God brought disaster on them as he promised and as he swore. You kind of see how those things seem almost a little bit opposite. Where God says on one hand, I'm faithful, I'm with you. On the other hand, God says, I'm working against you. As I've promised. Where God says, hey, 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 I'm going to give you this land. And a few minutes later, God says, I'm not going to give this land to a disobedient people. This is why, this is why in verse 2, God says, Listen, Israel, you've put me in an impossible situation. What is it you've done? There's this impossible situation. Because on one hand, God is holy and just. And God cannot tolerate or live or or bless evil. But on the other hand, God is a loving God and a faithful God. 
And he cannot tolerate the, the loss and the suffering of his people. And you've got these two things going back and forth, and, and there's this tension that creates. Will God give up on his people and no longer be a loving God? Or will God be a loving God and no longer be holy or concerned about how we live? There's this tension. What is it? Some of us, we lean towards, well, God is just a loving God. He'll forgive me of whatever I do. It doesn't matter how I live. And others of us will know, man, God's, God's a God of judgment. He's going to come hammer down on me because I have not been faithful. And this is the tension that you see in this book. And only the cross will relieve this tension. Only the cross will relieve this tension. Because on the cross, on the cross, Jesus says, here, here's my son is given for you. God says, I'm giving you my son. And your sin is going to be placed on him. And his righteousness is going to be placed on you. That on the cross, God's wrath is poured out for our disobedience. But his wrath is not poured out on us. His wrath is poured out on his son, Jesus. That on the cross, Jesus satisfied, uh, both, uh, satisfied both justice, where our sin is punished, but he also showed us his loving faithfulness, that he is able to accept us and forgive us because his judgment has been paid on Jesus. In fact, the only way that we ever resolve this tension between is God a God of love or a God of justice? He's both. That God is a God of love and righteous anger. And the only way that he can do this, the only way that he can be a God of justice and be a God of love is through the cross. Because his justice is fulfilled in Jesus. So we don't have to suffer that justice ourselves. That God's righteous anger is poured out on Jesus and our behalf so that God can look at us and say, even though you're disobedient, I still love you. Even though you're disobedient, I can still forgive you and I can still call you my son and my daughter. Now, without the gospel, without Jesus on the cross, we have two choices. If we don't understand Jesus on the cross, number one, we're going to become complacent in our sin. Because, well, God's just overwhelming love, and he'll forgive me anyways. Or without Jesus on the cross, we live under the burden of guilt and fear. Because we know God's going to come for us. So we're not supposed to live in that world. We live under the cross, where the tension has been relieved where God was finally able to, to allow us to be forgiven and to live forgiven and obedient lives despite living sinful and disobedient lives. This is why the judges points us to the cross, points us to the fact that we need a Savior. We need a Savior who will take that judgment upon himself to allow God to look at us and say, listen, despite the fact that we are yo-yos, Despite the fact that, that even though we know we're supposed to remain faithful to God and surrender all areas of our life, despite the fact that we know it and we continue to take our eyes off of him, God says, I can still love you and be faithful to you because my righteous anger has been poured out on my son. Here's a takeaway for us. Here's a takeaway for us this morning. If we have these small areas of unbelief and disobedience, they will lead to huge areas of disaster. I want to ask you this morning, what's that area of your life that you're saying, I can't? 
God, this is what you want from me. This is what you want me to do. God, I can't. Can you be honest? And change that word to I can't, I won't. God, this is what you want for me. God, I'm struggling with it. Listen, if we want to experience the freedom and the blessing and the promise of God, it comes and we say, God, I'll surrender this to you. God, I'll be obedient. God, there may be iron chariots in front of me, and I don't know how we're going to win. But God will provide a way. If we were made faithful, God will provide a way. It's who God is. It's what he does. Let's pray.